0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 1, where Jesus ascended into heaven. And remember, he told the disciples, I don't want you to do anything. I want you to stay put where you're at until the promised Holy Spirit comes upon you. So... Some time has elapsed, and this event takes place just as Jesus had predicted, starting in chapter uh, 2, verse 1. We're told, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Now, this probably refers to more than just the 12 disciples. Remember, there were many women and people who are not a part of the official apostolic band, and this number probably totaled about 120 people at this time. So they were all together meeting, and remember that Jesus said, I don't want you to do anything, I don't want you to start speaking for me, I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And so on this day, the day of Pentecost, they saw something miraculous happen. Now this word Pentecost refers to a holiday, a festival in the Jewish calendar called the Feast of Harvest. We're going to elaborate a little bit more on this later on, but The word Pentecost literally means 50. Penta meaning 50. So this was 50 days after the Passover, which we pointed out in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus died on that day. Well, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house where they were all sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each and every one of them. So apparently they heard this rushing wind and I don't know if you've ever lived like down on campus when around this time, which is hurricane season, you'll sometimes get these storms coming in where you'll have 40, 50, 60 mile an hour gusts and it will just crash against your house and shake your whole house. You know, your windows are shaking, your lawn furniture is just flying off of the porch And it's pretty terrifying. You know, sometimes when you get these big gusts and things are flying down the street, you know, neighbors will be popping their heads out to see what's going on. And so apparently something like this was happening in Jerusalem. This mighty windstorm just started to blow throughout Jerusalem. And then while they were sitting there in the house, we're told that something that looked like flames or tongues of fire... You know, like uh, if you have a lighter and you, you light it, it's like, you know, a little flame probably just descended onto each and every one of them. Well, everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit at that moment and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So they started to speak in these different foreign languages, presumably foreign languages that they didn't understand themselves or were unable to speak. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. So, people were surprised by this windstorm and they started peeking their heads out of their house and they see the disciples out there speaking and declaring the truth of God, but doing so in their own language. Now, it's significant that we're told devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem came out. We know that during the Passover, people from all parts of the ancient world would come and descend upon Jerusalem, and the population of Jerusalem would actually swell up to a million people, because God commanded all of uh, the nation of Israel to come and celebrate Passover, and often they would stay for some of these spring festivals. So that's the reason why there were so many people these devout Jews in Jerusalem. Well, they were completely amazed. How can this be they exclaimed? These people are from Galilee and yet we hear them speaking in our own native tongues. These people, the disciples were from Galilee, which that was from the northern part of Israel, the kind of the sticks So these guys were regarded as sort of uncultured people who were from the back country, and they were surprised that these disciples who are from this area were able to speak in their own native native languages. New Testament uh, scholar and theologian Richard Longnecker says they had difficulty pronouncing gutturals. And had the habit of swallowing syllables when speaking, so they were looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem as being provincial. You know, this would be kind of like if you walked out into the parking lot, you know, somebody uh, from rural eastern Kentucky jumps out of their pickup and walks up to you and starts speaking perfect Korean. Uh, You'd be like, "That, that must be from God. I don't know, I mean, you know, how can you explain something like that? And so this must have been the impression that they got where they were just stunned that these guys who were relatively uneducated, uncultured, were speaking in their language. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Macedonia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and these areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own language, uh, languages about the wonderful things God has done. So apparently the disciples were not just trying to impress these people with their ability to speak foreign languages, but they were actually declaring the truth about God and what he had done. And so it was a miraculous thing that they were witnessing. They stood there amazed and perplexed. They said, what can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other disciples and shouted to the crowd. He said, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people aren't drunk, as some of you might be assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. (laughs) He's like, it's not game day. You know, it's 9 a.m. People are sober at this point. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In these last days, God says, I will pour my spirit upon all the people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. So Peter quotes this Old Testament passage from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 13, I think through 15. And he uses this as evidence to show his crowd that what they're seeing isn't coincidence. That what they're seeing was actually predicted long ago by the prophet Joel, that God knew that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit would happen one day. And that it would be upon all the nations, that it wouldn't just be upon just the Jews. Well, we're told that in the aftermath of all of this, in verse 41, that Peter's speech, which we're going to study here in detail, was so persuasive, so convincing. In addition to that, the Spirit was moving so powerfully through Peter that those who believed what Peter said were baptized in the, and added to the church that day 3,000 in all. Not bad for one day's worth of preaching, I guess. You know, they went from 120 to 3,120 in just one day. A 25% or 25 times of, uh, uh, 25 time growth there. So an incredible number of people. Clearly this was supernatural. Now it's interesting that when you look at the time when the spirit was poured out on disciples and you sort of track the chronology of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and this event that actually perfectly aligns with some of the spring festivals that we read about in the Old Testament where God commanded, I want you to celebrate these festivals as a, a permanent ordinance throughout the generations. And God embedded these ordinances or these festivals in the Old Testament in order to symbolize and predict the coming of his chosen one, the Messiah, as a form of evidence for future people reading the Bible. Pentecost was the last of these three spring festivals and foreshadowed both the content and chronology of Jesus' work of salvation. The Apostle Paul later on points out that these festivals, these rituals... All of these things that God gave to us in the Old Testament were really ways to show that symbolically he would send Jesus and that these were pictures of what he would do through Jesus. This is what he says in Colossians 2 verse 16 and 17. He says, don't let anyone judge you with regard to a religious festival or new moon ceremony or Sabbath day. He says, these are shadows of things that were to come, but the reality, however, is found in Christ. So, in other words, when you look to some of these Old Testament rituals, that when you look at the different elements of each festival or ritual, that many of them point to what Jesus would eventually do on the cross. Now, let's look at the spring festivals that surround Jesus' death, resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The first we read about in Luke, remember Jesus celebrated the Passover meal, his last meal with his disciples, and this actually happened to also fall on his death the next day, on Friday. And um, the date of this Passover would be the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, somewhere around March or early April. And the purpose was, of course, that Passover commemorated God's deliverance of the Jews from Egypt. We studied this a few weeks ago where when you break down the Passover meal, many of the elements align perfectly. They, They snap together with the picture we see of what Jesus did on the cross. Remember, the context of this was that God was trying to extract the nation of Israel out of Egypt where they were enslaved. And he was sending the 10th plague upon the the land where he was going to take the firstborn of every family, every household. But he provided a way of escape, a way for this judgment to pass over. Any household that decided to perform this ritual of Passover. And it required taking, first of all, an innocent lamb and then slaughtering it at twilight, then taking some of the blood and wiping it across the doorway, so that when God came that night to judge each household, he would see the blood of the innocent lamb smattered on the doorpost and then pass over that house because he knew that a life had been taken. And likewise, we're told that Jesus fulfilled this. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy 16, verse 5 and 6, that God actually said that when you get into the promised land, because at the time that Deuteronomy was written, they were still wandering around in the desert. He said, I want you to celebrate this ordinance, this permanent ordinance of Passover in the city where my temple will be, in Jerusalem. And so that's why all these people were there. Of course, the fulfillment was that the Passover lamb signified Jesus whose death delivers us from God's judgment. You know, when John the Baptist saw Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, what does he say? He declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognized that Jesus was the fulfillment of this Old Testament practice. And, of course, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, for our Passover lamb has been sacrificed in reference to Jesus. So, These New Testament writers are making these connections and seeing that Jesus was the fulfillment of this this symbol, this shadow that God had given in the Old Testament. Well, then we have what's called the Festival of First Fruits, which was uh, the Sunday following Passover. So three days later, based on the chronology we get from the Gospels. And the purpose of this was that they celebrated God's faithfulness to provide. What God commanded was that each farmer would go to the edge of his land at the very beginning of the harvest and chop off a small bunch of barley and offer it to the priest and then offer a sacrifice. And it was a way of acknowledging that God came through on his promise to provide for them, but also a further acknowledgement of their confidence that God would provide in the future. And so this festival of first fruits actually was fulfilled in Jesus when he rose on the festival of first fruits. You know, as the people were acknowledging and thanking God for providing for them and also giving a confident assertion that he would provide in the future, at that moment Jesus rose from the dead as a kind of first fruits, suggesting that, Being bodily raised was something that was in store for all followers of him. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, Paul says, But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And so Jesus' resurrection signaled a kind of first fruits, what's in store for all of us who have placed our faith in Christ. And then finally, we have the day of Pentecost, which we're studying. And that was 50 days after Passover. And the purpose of the Pentecost feast was that they were celebrating the beginning of the grain harvest. So they would take some of the produce from their land, and they would actually bake bread and bring it to the temple as a kind of thank offering. And so this was a way of acknowledging that God had given them a great harvest and had provided for them. And so the fulfillment, of course, was that Jesus poured out his spirit onto his followers so that they could reap the harvest of people coming to Christ. You know, at the moment that they were acknowledging and thanking God by bringing these loaves to the priests, at that moment the spirit was descending upon the disciples and we were seeing the, the harvest of souls as people met Christ that day, 3,000 in all. And so we have really a beautiful picture here of what God would do and how he pre-authenticates the coming of his son and the work that he would do. Pretty amazing. Now, when we kind of take a step back and look at this amazing thing that happened, I mean, I've never been in a situation where I've seen 3,000 people come to Christ in one day. That's clearly an act of the spirit, an unusual thing. And God promised that he would animate this through the power of his Holy Spirit. But I think it would be also misleading to say that the disciples, Jesus' followers, had no real part in this. That They were just passively going along with what God was doing. They played their part as well. And so I think it's important for us as we study the rest of Peter's speech here to kind of look for what you might call principles of effective witness. So, On the one hand, we want to try to depend on God's power, but on the other hand, we also want to make sure to hone our ability to communicate God's truth effectively. You know, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which we studied last week, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, he says, you will be my witnesses. This word is the Greek word marturion, which is uh, incidentally where we get the word martyr from, but it means literally to testify. You know, when you call a witness to the stand, what are they doing? They're, They're testifying about the things that they saw in a court of law. And, of course, it requires preparation to give a testimony, you know, when a prosecutor or a defense attorney decides to call on a witness, a lot of times they spend time with the witness preparing them. It's not as simple as just getting up there and telling the truth because it's, it's, it's um, you can get confused while you're on the stand. And so a lot of times it requires preparation and you need to think about how you're going to communicate the truth effectively. And so likewise, As we look at Peter's speech, we need to think about how we can learn to communicate effectively for God so that we can be powerful witnesses for him. Let's go back to verse 6 and 12 and look at our first principle. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What could this mean, they asked each other. So, the first thing that we see was that um, really the first principle is that there was a demonstration of God's power. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if we saw a bona fide miracle every single time, you know, we came to CT? That'd make my job a lot easier. <laughs> and yet, I, I'm not really sure why God doesn't do this very often anymore I think when we read the book of Acts, it's easy to conclude that this was an everyday occurrence during the early church times. But remember, those 28 chapters are really a a condensed version of events that span many years, 30 plus years. And so Luke indicates that these were unusual events. I mean, that's why he's recording them, because they, they were so striking. And so We don't see these sorts of things happening as often today, and yet we do see something that's just as compelling, just as persuasive, and something that's pretty hard to refute. And that is, we possess the powerful testimony of God's power to change lives. That many people in this room have experienced God's transforming power. And really the great thing about this is that when you compare it to like a miraculous event, like a supernatural event, a miracle, it's tough because if you're a skeptic and you see something that might appear to be miraculous, what might you say to God? All right, let's see that again. I'm not sure. Maybe my eyes were fooling me. You know, I just need to kind of make sure that uh, I'm not tripping here. And so it's easy to doubt that. Not to mention a miraculous event is non-repeatable. Whereas when you look at a friend or a family member and see their lives being transformed over time, that's very compelling. And something needs to be said about that. You know, we are told by Jesus that this is one of the ways that he wants to communicate to the watching world that he's real. He says, let your good deeds shine out for all those to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. That as God changes us, as he kind of sands off the rough edges of our lives, as he does major surgery to try to fix broken areas of our life, that as our friends and family watch on, that they're going to see something different. And it may actually lead them to ask questions. You know, I I can't really explain why I see you changing. Others might just passively watch and be waiting for you to explain why you're different or why you've changed. You know, I think about there are many cases where in our fellowship people have watched their family members or their friends change, and that that has piqued their interest in Christ. I can think about one case where this one woman started coming out to our college Bible study, and you know her three sisters started to gain some interest. They're like, "Why is she going to this Bible study thing?" Because they never grew up in the church or anything like that. And so, one by one, over the course of like three or four years, each one of them visited. And eventually came to Christ and have been following God. And just recently I heard a story about how their mom noticed that her uh, second oldest daughter was really changing. That she had a kind of messed up life where she was constantly fighting with people. Sometimes verbally, sometimes physically with her friends. That she was going out on the weekends and just, you know, partying and, and living this really destructive life. And she saw that her daughter was changing and decided, I need to go and check this out. And so she's been a, a visiting an adult home church and uh, still hasn't met Christ. But the, what she's seeing in her daughter's life is compelling. And so, likewise, you know, if you have the Spirit of God in your life and you're allowing Him to change you, people are watching. And it's a compelling thing. You know, you may compare yourself to older believers and think, oh, I'm not really changing that much. But you are. It's subtle. It's incremental. But it's something that's really happening. And people are watching. And so that's what we have on our side. Principle number one, demonstration of God's power. But that also leads us to our second principle, which is that we need to make sure to give credit to Christ. When people ask us, how, why are things changing in your life? You know, think about Acts chapter 3, verse 9 through 12. Peter heals this man who had been paralyzed. And apparently all the people in Jerusalem who knew this guy, they probably had walked past him as he was begging on the streets, were told all the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. And when they realized that he was the lame beggar that they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, where the man was holding tightly onto Peter and John. You know, it would probably be kind of freaky if uh, hundreds of people start rushing at you. You know, this guy's like, oh my God, what are they going to do, attack me? And Peter saw his opportunity, and he addressed the crowd. He said, people of Israel... Why why are you surprised about this? And why do you stare at us as though we made this man walk by our own power or our godliness? And he goes on to explain that it was an act of Christ, the power of God. And so he took every opportunity to try to step out of the limelight and to give glory and acknowledgement to God for these incredible things that they were seeing. And I think that's important for us to consider because... You know, we need to help people connect that what they're seeing isn't something that we did. That's very important. You know, really, there are two ways of stealing glory from God. One would be taking credit for something God has done. So we are able to do something through God's power. And when people are like, that's amazing, we take the credit, the glory that rightfully he deserves. Or failing to give credit to God and then letting people fill in the blanks thinking, well, maybe he's just a really cool guy. Or maybe, you know, he's just got his life together. Or maybe she's just really self-disciplined. That's why we're seeing this change. We can't do that. We can't let people fill in the blanks because it's really a way of robbing God of his glory and taking acknowledgement or credit from him. I heard a story about how uh, one of my friends had a cookout for some of his neighbors who just moved in across the street earlier the in the year. And um, during the cookout, one of his neighbors, a woman, was talking to his wife and said, you know, I've been watching you and your family all summer. <laughs> and as you can imagine, you know, his wife just had these vivid images just flashing through her mind of spats that she had with her husband uh, that either you know spilled out of the wall, the confines of their house, or spats that they had with their kids. And so she sort of braced herself for what she was going to say next. And she said, you know, I've been watching your family, and uh, it's amazing to see the way that you guys relate to each other, because I've never had a family, and I've always wanted a family. My And, and she went on to explain that her dad had been out of the picture since she could remember, and that Uh, She had a really rough family life. Now, what if his wife said to her, well, thanks, we do have a great family. Instead of saying, you know, if it wasn't for Christ and what he's done in our life, you know, me and my husband probably wouldn't even be married right now. Our kids would be a total wreck right now. Our lives would be in total shambles if you knew us before we met Christ. I mean, if she did not say that, then essentially she's leaving it open to interpretation for her to fill in the blanks. In a way, allowing people to fill in the blanks about what they see in your life is essentially a way of taking credit for something God has done. In a way, it's really her saying, take a good look, honey, because this is the closest you're ever going to get to that, you know? I mean... uh, We need to consider that if we just keep silent and people notice this change and we never tell them that the real source and power of change in our life is God, then we're essentially leaving it up to people to figure out, well, maybe there's a naturalistic explanation. Maybe these people are good people by nature. We don't want them to conclude that. Well, we're told in verse 22 and 23, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders and signs through him as you well know. But God knew what would happen and this and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. And with the help of lawless Gentiles you nailed him to the cross and killed him. Wow. We know that some of the people in this crowd were actually present at the at the trial when Pilate presented Jesus before the people and Many of these people, according to Peter, were people who were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And so they were more than just bystanders. They weren't just passive observers. They were actually complicit in Jesus's crucifixion. But he says, God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life for death could not keep him in his grip. And he says, King David said this about him, I see the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he's right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praise. My body rests in hope for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, Peter says, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and he was buried. But he was a prophet and knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future, speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. So Peter cites again an Old Testament passage to verify that this was God's plan all along to raise the Messiah from the dead, bodily. And he concludes, God raised Jesus from the dead and we were all witnesses of this. Referring to the 120 who were there. So I think this leads us to our third principle for effective witness, which is that we need to offer evidence for belief in Christ. You know, we live in a culture that is increasingly skeptical about the Bible. People have a lot of questions. Whether or not the Bible is chocked full with historical and geographical errors. Whether or not it was something that was compiled by, you know, humans over the course of thousands of years. And people who are pretending to be Moses or pretending to be John the Apostle, but really were their disciples. And so we have to be able to offer evidence because our culture is, remains skeptical. Um, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15 that we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but to do so with gentleness and respect. So the same guy who wrote 1 Peter here, the Apostle Peter, and the same guy standing there speaking, indicates that we need to be prepared to give an answer. That we need to arm ourselves with arguments so that when people ask us hard questions about the Bible, we have a ready answer. And he says, make sure, he says, prepare to give an answer, or in some translations, a defense. That word in Greek is the word apologia. And that is where we get the word apologetics from which refers to giving an adequate defense for the message of Christ. So we need to to do the work. We need to study. It's not just about, I, I just need to let the spirit flow here as I'm talking to people, but we need to make sure that we are studying and able to provide answers to tough questions that people have. You know, there are a lot of people who wonder, How can God be a good and loving God if there's so much evil in the world? That comes up almost every time I talk to a non-Christian person about spiritual things. And if you don't have an adequate answer for that, you're going to be in trouble if you plan on trying to share your faith. Now, we also need to make sure that we are learning a variety of evidence. Because as you can see, Peter used Old Testament passages in order to back up that Christ was actually, the, or that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's important because he was sensitive to the fact that this is exactly what his hearers needed to see in order to believe. And so likewise, we need to be careful and we need to, to listen in order to provide the right kind of evidence to the people we're talking to. Uh, so it not only requires us learning broad apologetics or um, that we need to learn different arguments for belief in Christ in the Bible, but also it requires us learning how to have a sensitive ear in conversations that we're actually listening to what people are saying, that we're engaging them and asking them what their doubts are. You know, some of us, whenever we learn a new argument about Christianity, it's like somebody gave us a hammer for the first time. Everyone we meet looks like a a nail. So we just, you know, pound them with this argument, even though they have, they really have no questions about that area. And so we need sensitivity. And it's important that we do so with gentleness and respect. You know, when we talk to non-Christian people, we need to make sure that when we are dialoguing with them, it's not getting heated and argumentative, but that we're doing so with respect That, you know, people have their views. And and if you have held the same view for decades, it's hard for that just to get overturned in a moment of time. And so it's going to require persistence. It's going to require us talking to people often several times before they're actually willing to listen. You know, we need to get it in our heads that it's possible to win the argument and still lose the person. So we have to be careful in the way that we talk to people. Verse 36 and 37, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other disciples, Brothers, what should we do? Peter really let them have it. And they were to the point where they, their hearts were cut to the quick. Or as this translation says, that they were pierced to their hearts. You know, some of us know what this feels like, where you're, you're sitting either reading the Bible or you're hearing somebody talk to you about the message of Christ, and there is just this sense that God is speaking directly to you. I've had that happen to me a lot of times in my life. And so, you wonder what Peter's going to say. Well, in verse 38, he says, "...each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins." then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to look at the conditions for accepting or receiving Christ in a moment. But I think it's important to consider that what Peter replies with is what some call the grace of God. That instead of God judging us and condemning us, God actually wants to show us mercy and love. In fact, He sent his own son, Jesus, to come and die in order to forgive us of our sins. And in addition to that, he promises that when we accept this gift that he gives to us, that he will actually pour out his Holy Spirit into our lives and that he will make residence within us and live within us. So this leads us to our fourth principle, which is that we need to immediately highlight God's grace whenever we're sharing the message of Christ with people. And I think that's important because people have a lot of preconceived ideas about Christianity. That God is all about snatching away fun from people, that he's very restrictive, that he's just looking to judge people. And so it's very important for us to try to disarm that immediately by pointing out that God is a just God, but he's not looking for an opportunity to punish people that he wants to show people love and mercy. And so we need to introduce that idea right away when we're talking to people. And we need to do so often. You know, sometimes we get discouraged when we're sharing the message of of grace with people because it doesn't seem like people are very responsive. But again, we need to entrust ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit that even though the person doesn't seem responsive in the moment, that when they go home, God is going to drive that point home through the Holy Spirit and really pound it into their hearts. And I've had uh, people describe something just like that, where you know they didn't seem very responsive, and then they went home and they, they were just like, "Man, I was, uh, you know, hearing that teaching, and I just recall this this one thing that the person said, which you know happens to be a passage that they brought up." And they're like, I just could not get that out of my head. And we can account for that by the Holy Spirit really driving that point home. And so we need to consider that as we bring up God's grace, people may not look responsive, but eventually I think God will drive that point home with them. And then also principle number five, that we need to explain to people how they should accept Christ. And that's exactly what Peter did here. He says, each of you must repent, which is kind of an archaic word that we don't use very often today, but the word repent simply means to have a change of mind or orientation. It's an acknowledgement that the way that we are moving, the direction that we're headed toward is leading toward destruction, but that instead we have decided to turn in the way that God has directed. And so we need to repent. We need to Look at the way that we're living and realize the futility of the way uh, that we are headed and instead turn to the direction that God has put forward for us, which is to receive Christ. You know, some of us think that this is just sort of an intellectual thing um, that you believe in, in the sense that you acknowledge that this is probably true, that Jesus died for us, but John actually points out that it's, it's going to require a little bit more than that. It needs to be a personal transaction between us and God. In John 1.12, we're told, To all who believed him, that is Jesus, and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, there's some of you who might be familiar with the message of grace, of God's forgiveness, and maybe you even believe that. But the question that you need to ask yourself is, Have you personally accepted that? Have you actually turned to God and said, you know, I I know that I'm separated from you, and I want what Jesus did to apply to my moral debt, to actually have an interaction with God about this. And finally, we need to make sure that as we are Sharing the message of Christ that we do so with persistence. We're told in verse 40, Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So we're getting sort of the abridged version of Peter's speech. And if you know anything about Peter, he's kind of a talker, so I'm sure this was a really long speech. But he continued to urge them, which means that we're going to have to persist in sharing the message of Christ. A lot of times, it doesn't sink in right away with people. I remember a number of years ago, I was sharing Christ with a friend and he was coming out to home church every single week. And I think that in the course of me hanging out with him and bringing him out to home church, I must have shared the message of Christianity probably a dozen times with him, whether that was after a meeting or in the car ride home. And, you know, you could tell it just it just was... Um, they were just glancing blows. I mean, he just was not connecting with it. And one night after home church, he was talking to a brother um, at our meeting. And then I took him home and he's like, you know, man, I was talking to to that guy, Brian, tonight. And he was telling me that like, Jesus died for my sins. That just blows my mind. I've never even heard of that before. You know, outwardly I was smiling, I was like, oh yeah, that's really cool. But inwardly I was just like, dude, I literally told you that like a million times. <laughs> you know, I was just grasping my steering wheel harder and harder, just in frustration. But if you've ever had an experience of sharing your faith with people, you'll know that it just, it, it just doesn't register right away. There's a lot of noise that, that we probably need to get rid of before people get clarity about the message of Christ, and so we need to persist. And, we're, you know, when I mean sharing the message of Christ, I'm not saying that you need to call people to a decision the very first time you share it, but you need to introduce the idea almost immediately. Okay. There you have the, the story of the Spirit breaking into the early church there. Let's draw a few points of summary. I think the first point would be God calls followers to serve as witnesses to what they've seen him do in their lives and the lives of others. You know, many of us feel aimless. Many of us feel like our life doesn't have tons of meaning. We sometimes question, why am am I doing all of these things? Is it even worthwhile? Well, God has given us something that we could invest in that's going to have eternal significance And he's called us to something that is maybe the most important thing we could ever devote our lives to. And so he may be calling on you to serve as somebody who bears witness or testifies to God's goodness. Secondly, God will empower us to to his work, but we also need to play our part. We need to remember that the Spirit will empower us, but we also need to make sure to work hard to hone Our ability to communicate the message of Christ clearly, but also that we're able to discuss all of the different questions that might come up in conversation. And finally, for those of us who are intrigued by this whole idea of making a difference, devoting our lives to something bigger than ourselves and our selfish desires. This starts by letting the Holy Spirit enter your life. And the only way that that will happen is by turning to God and allowing God to forgive you for all the things that you've done. You know, just like these people in the book of Acts who felt pierced to the heart by what Peter was saying, some of you might be feeling pierced to the heart by the message of Christ. And I'd urge you, don't don't wait until next month Don't wait until some other time. You you need to make a decision now. Seize the opportunity if you feel that, that God is calling on you to turn to him and receive his gift. Yes, Lord, I've never seen 3,000 people come to you in one moment, but um, I've witnessed uh, hundreds of people come to know you over the last few years through this ministry. And uh, it blows my mind. And um, I know personally that during those times, I didn't feel like I was doing anything different or that I was any more spiritual that maybe was causing any of that. But that it was uh, the power of your spirit working through us, Lord. And um, we just thank you for times that you work like this. And um, thank you that uh, we have the spirit that animated this incredible event that we see in Acts chapter 2. And we pray that we can see more people come to know you in uh, in just the same way. And uh, finally, Lord, I pray for those of us who don't have the Spirit at all, who sense the uh, emptiness in their lives, who uh, sense that maybe they are distant from you. I pray that in this moment they would just uh, seize upon maybe you calling on them to turn to you for the very first time and receive Christ, that they would have the boldness to receive your offer tonight. And we thank you for anyone who did that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.